Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus, the 17th chapter, where I'd like to read for you the first seven verses. This is one of the most important incidents in the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel in the Old Testament account. After we read Exodus 17, 1-7, I'd like to read the Apostle Paul's inspired commentary on that in the New Testament, as it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 13 verses. And so now our scripture reading from the Old Testament, Exodus 17, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin by their journeys according to the commandment of Jehovah and encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people strove with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why strive ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt Jehovah? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore hast thou brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto Jehovah, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Pass on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there, upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the striving of the children of Israel, and because they tempted Jehovah, saying, is Jehovah among us or not? And now in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Howbeit with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us make trial of the Lord, as some of them made trial and perished by the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them murmured and perished by the destroyer. Now these things happened unto them by way of example. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as man can bear. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, 
but will with the temptation make also the way of escape that ye may be able to endure it. And thus far the reading of God's word. In Exodus, the 17th chapter, we read of an experience that probably none of us have ever had or ever will have, an experience that undoubtedly, even to the Israelites, seemed very unique, the experience of thousands of people wandering across the wilderness to a promised land, a land that they had been promised by God, but they hadn't seen. And as they wandered across this wilderness, they became hungry and thirsty. And the scripture text this morning teaches us that that hunger and thirst led them to rebellion against God, such rebellion as deserves his wrath and his curse and separation from him for all eternity. And yet they were saved by a miracle of grace as God graciously provided for their needs, though they were rebelling against him. We're going to look at detail, look at this passage in detail in just a moment or two, but I first of all want to draw to your attention how important this particular incident is. And I need to convince you of that because right now you probably wouldn't believe it. If I were to say, if I were to ask, if we were to have a little quiz this morning, and I were to have you list for me the most important incidents in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, which ones would you give me from the early period, the formation of the Israelite nation? Um, I'd feel very badly if anybody in this congregation would not put down the crossing of the Red Sea. And if you've read the Psalms at all, you know the crossing of the Red Sea comes up over and over and over again as an illustration of God's mighty power, the fulfillment of his promises, and as an exemplar of how God will continue to deliver his people in the future. So the crossing of the Red Sea, that's one of those automatic things. You'd put that answer down. What else would you list? I want to suggest to you this morning that most of you, and in all honesty, apart from my own study of this, I'm sure I too would not have thought of this particular passage. The Israelites were thirsty, they murmured against God, God said, go out here in the wilderness to this particular rock, strike the rock, water will come out. But I mean, he did a lot of miracles, right? As the children of Israel were wandering across the wilderness, many things were done by God that had a miraculous character to them. Why should this particular one, it's only seven verses after all, out of uh, one chapter here in the book of Exodus, why should this be so important? And so I want to take just a moment before we expound the text to demonstrate to you that it is, in fact, a crucial passage that is brought up many times in the Word of God, and then hopefully toward the end of our exhortation this morning you'll understand why. Follow with me in the Scripture text, however. I'm going to look at five passages to try to prove my point to you. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 15, to begin our little survey. In Deuteronomy 8, the 15th verse... We read of God who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, etc. Even as Moses is recounting the mighty things God has done for the people, he says, who gave you water out of a rock? 
Now, you may have read the story in Sunday school. You may already know about it. It may be one of those sorts of things that we, unfortunately, as evangelical Christians, just kind of take for granted. It's one of those stories in the Bible. Well, lest it become just an indifferent matter of one of those stories in the Bible, let me ask you how you would bring water out of a rock. That is an incredible accomplishment, a miracle. Uh, as it turns out, our text will show us that it's far more than just a display of God's mighty power, however. Here in Deuteronomy, we see a reference to that. Turn to the Psalms now, and we'll begin, we'll work kind of backward, at Psalm 114. Psalm 114, verse 8. The 114th Psalm begins with these words, When Israel went forth out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Okay, so we have a recounting of how God formed the nation of Israel, how the Red Sea fled before them. And then look at verse 8, the very end of this, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. This is one special incident among those few Exodus details that are recounted here in the 114th Psalm. It comes up for special mention. Turn back to Psalm 105, verse 41. He opened the rock and waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. In Psalm 105, the people of God are being called upon to thankfully praise him and they're being encouraged to seek him. And one of the ways in which that comes about is by remembering that he brought water out of a rock. Turn back even further now to Psalm 78, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 78, verses 15, 16, and 20. He clave rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as out of the depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Verse 20, Behold, he smote the rock so that waters gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Rhetorical questions. Of course he will and he can. In Psalm 78, the people of God are being taught to set their hope on God. They're being warned against testing God in unbelief. And so this incident of water from the rock is brought up again. And let me give you just one more illustration, then we move on. Turn to now the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 21. Isaiah wants to certify God's promise of deliverance to his people. And so in Isaiah 48, 21, as part of this discussion of how you can count on God, we read, and they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. And so, throughout the Old Testament, there is a constant reminder that God brought water out of the rock when the people were in the wilderness. That is a crucial incident in the history of salvation for God's people. And so much so that even if I didn't give you this particular survey from the Old Testament, you should know that because the Apostle Paul takes time and a number of verses to expound the significance of the fact that when the people thought they were in unique circumstances and that God might not deliver them and began to test him and to question him 
and to doubt his promises that God brought water from the rock. And Paul brings a particular point to mind from that when he says, and that rock was Christ. And so this is a very important matter if we're going to understand the theology of the Old and New Testaments, and I certainly want you to understand it before you leave today. What is Exodus 17 all about? Well, there's really two major themes in Exodus 17. The first one is just this, that unfaithful rebelliousness merits the punishment of God. Unfaithful rebelliousness merits the punishment of God. The people of God are seen here in Exodus 17 in just the short span of these seven verses going through a four-step stumble down to judgment. They first of all stumbled at failing faith, which brought them to the next step down of miserable murmuring. And then they began to prove God, and finally they deserved death. But see this in the text. First of all, the failing faith of God's people. It's interesting that in Hebrews, the third chapter, which begins to exhort the new covenant people of God on the basis of the old covenant experience of the people not entering the promised land, there in Hebrews 3, we read of an evil heart of unbelief that led them to lose confidence in God, and therefore they didn't enter the land. An evil heart of unbelief. The failing faith of the people must first of all be seen here. Failing faith. You might be inclined, I would hope if you're really listening this morning, you would admit to being inclined to thinking that's a little bit harsh. Failing faith. I mean, look at the circumstances of the people, after all. They're out there in the middle of the desert. There aren't any gas stations to stop at, you know, to use the bathroom and get a drink of water. No McDonald's along the way. I mean, they're thirsty. Uh, not many of us have known that kind of thirst. We all know what it is to feel thirsty and want to go in and get a drink of water or to stop somewhere for a drink of water. But out there in the desert, it's the kind of thirst that makes your tongue swell up in your mouth makes it hard for you even to go through the swallowing motions with your throat because it is so parched. And they went days in the wilderness. And they're thirsty. And there's thousands of people around. And they're not really sure where they're going. And what do they have as confidence? They have this, this man and his brother up here leading them, saying God gave them a message at a bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed. I mean, it took an awful lot to believe these sorts of stories. It took an awful lot to commit to going across the desert and not know where you're going to end up. And now we talk about their failing faith. Yes, we talk about their failing faith. Because I want to show you a few things. If you turn back in Exodus, say to chapter 14, you'll notice that the people of God have left Egypt and they've come to the Red Sea. And lo and behold, as they come to the Red Sea, they turn, and in the distance they see the dust and the chariots of Pharaoh's army pursuing them. And the first thing they think is, Moses, you've brought us out here to die. You've ambushed us. You've got us up here boxed against the Red Sea, and now here comes Pharaoh and his armies. We're going to be slaughtered here, right here. And what happened? I mean, any child who has gone to Sunday school or Bible school can tell me. What happened at the Red Sea? I mean, if you've just gone to the movies over the last 20 years, you know what happened. God divided the Red Sea in two. Um, 
you all know that I work in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, and it's fascinating to me to see how people try to defend the accuracy of this account in the Bible. They tell us how as a, as a miracle of uh, timing, God could have sent a mighty wind that would have driven the Red Sea down and really made it, well, you could ford across it. It would just, it'd be real sloshly, muddy ground, but God could do that, probably in a night. He could do that. The problem is that isn't what the account tells us. The Bible tells us that as the people went across the Red Sea, they went across on dry ground, and as they went across, there were walls of water on both sides. Nothing less than a mighty miracle of God as the people of God crossed. And besides, it wasn't that God just kind of made the Red Sea of, you know, something that you could ford across down to just a few inches of water. I've rarely seen an army of men drown in a few inches of water because you see what happened is Pharaoh and his covenant-breaking people came to persecute God's people as they crossed and they entered into that dry ground to go across the sea. God just brought the sea upon them and they all perished there. Now you put yourself on the other side of the Red Sea. You're standing there. What have you seen? You thought you were going to die. You thought for sure it was all over. What could God possibly do if there was a God or if he cared for you? He opens the Red Sea. You've walked across on dry ground and your enemies have just been consumed by the judgment of God in the Red Sea. Well, I know what I would have said if I were standing there. I would have said, boy, I'll never doubt his word again. There's no question that there's a God in heaven that he's all-powerful and he loves me and he's going to keep his promises to his people. No question whatsoever that God is with us. I'll never doubt. I've seen the miracle. And then you turn the page, you see, to Exodus, the 15th chapter, and what do you find? The people of God have come to Marah and the water that they expected there is bitter. That's why it's called Marah in the Hebrew. It means bitter, bitter waters. And now what do they do? You know what you would have done, right? You would have said, hey, I've already committed myself. I'm going to trust God. I've seen the miracle. I know that I can count on him. And they just fall down on their knees and say, God, show us what you're going to do. You're almighty God and we trust you. This is really remarkable that you've given us another opportunity to trust you. Well, but that isn't what happened in the story. The people began to murmur again and to... And to call Moses down for bringing him out into this lousy situation and, and to wonder whether God cared for them, whether he could do anything about it. And so what happens? Well, very simply, God tells Moses to root up this tree and throw it into the bitter waters of Marah, and they turn sweet. And the people are saved again. And so now what do you have? Back-to-back -back miracles. At the Red Sea and at Marah, two miracles to save the life of the people. And boy, if you didn't make your commitment, your vow at the Red Sea, you certainly would have made it at Marah. You would have said, now I've seen God work twice. There's no doubt about it. He's with us. He'll keep his promises. He has the power to do it. Nothing will shake my faith. And then you turn the page, and you come to Exodus, the 16th chapter. And in Exodus 16, the people have run out of their ordinary supplies, and they're hungry and they have no idea what they're going to eat. Try going out in the wilderness, the desert of that region, and you'll understand why they were concerned. There is nothing to eat. We're talking dirt poor. 
But the people, having seen back-to-back -back miracles, you say, of course, they just prayed to God, and they said, God, what are you going to do? This is going to be fantastic. We're waiting on you. We know you won't let us down. No, they didn't do that. They murmured and complained, and God now sends them what? Manna every morning and quail in the evening. Tremendous miracle. And the people you see after all of this ought to have learned that from these experiences, as often as necessity pressed them, God relieved them. As often as some necessity fell on them, God would relieve their needs. They should have learned that. And now we come to our text this morning. We come to their third major march across the desert. They come to Rephidim expecting a, a large supply of water, but there wasn't any there. And instead of falling on their knees and praying and trust before God, they hastened to despair. And I mean, they hastened to despair. The text doesn't give us any idea that they stopped and they said, well, now let's calculate here. God has relieved us three times by miracles. We found that he's true to his promise three times in a row. And um, probably he'll uh, relieve us again. No, there wasn't any deliberation. They immediately murmur against Moses. They said, you brought us out here to die, Moses. What's this all about? Why are you doing this to us, Moses? And Moses says, and he's not the sort of man who would exaggerate, meek as he was, he says, Lord, they're about to stone me. The people were going to execute their leader rather than to trust God. Now, what do we learn from this, friends? There are a lot of lessons in today's lesson, and the first one that you need to find is the impossibility of miracle faith. People do not believe in God and do not trust his word because of miracles. It is so hard to get that through the head of certain evangelical apologists, but the fact remains that people do not become believers through miracles. In Luke, the 16th chapter, our Lord Jesus Christ tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, as you know the story, ends up going to hell and suffering for his sins, especially his oppression of the poor man, Lazarus. And there in hell, the rich man looks to Father Abraham, the father of the faithful of the Jewish people, and he says that it's important that he come back from the dead to go to his brothers and to warn them about coming to this place of torment. Abraham's answer, actually Jesus' answer, put in Abraham's mouth in the story, Jesus' answer is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And to this, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, no. But if a man rises from the dead, then they'll believe. If you'll but give them a resurrection miracle, that'll convince them. To which Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. If they will not hear the scriptures, neither will they believe, though a man rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus here speaking of his own resurrection and how the Pharisees would reject him, though he rose from the dead. If they won't hear the scriptures, they will not believe on the basis of miracles. Friends, do not let your friends who are unbelievers, do not let them tell you that if God would just show himself, he'd just do some mighty thing, they would believe. I still remember, it's just etched upon my, my mind so graphically when I was a senior in high school. Being in a, I was the student body president and I was with the secretary of the student body going to do some school business. We were in the car and I was also the president of the Youth for Christ Club and we were talking about things of the Lord. I remember how Randy said to me, she said, well, if God would just do some kind of miracle in my life, then I would believe. 
And I thought to myself, in a sense, it's a shame that the age of miracles is over because, you see, there are people like Randy who that's all she wanted was just some visual display of God's power and she'd believe. I've learned better since those naive days. People do not believe on the basis of miracles. The Israelites did not believe on the basis of miracles. You don't believe on the basis of miracles. And no one believer is brought to the Lord on the basis of miracles. Miracle faith is impossible. The Bible tells us that the people of God obeyed according to the mouth of Jehovah. It says according to the commandment of Jehovah in our translation, but the Hebrew, according to the mouth of Jehovah, the idea being that they were following on his every word, everything that came out of his mouth, they were following according to the mouth of Jehovah, and they were apparently disposed to follow after their duties until a temptation arose. And in that sense, we really haven't traveled beyond Rephidim today, have we? Isn't that so much like us? We're so willing to be Christians, to be the disciples of the Lord, to follow in his steps, to do what he says, to be like him, to obey his word. We want to do what the Lord says, and I think we're genuine in that. Don't get me wrong. We sincerely want to do this until... A temptation comes up until some obstacle is there, until the going gets rough. According to 1 Corinthians 10, we're supposed to learn something from this experience of the Israelites. In fact, Paul says, you know, these things were written for our admonition. These things were not written down so much for the old covenant people of God. They were written down for us in the New Testament church. They were written for our admonition that we should learn not to lust after evil things. That we should learn to trust the Lord. That's a little bit surprising, I think, to many theologians today who believe the Old Testament is pretty much there for historical background, and that's about it. Paul says that even the history of the Old Testament has ethical application to us today. And you can be very sure that if the history of the Old Testament has application and certainly the commandments found in the Old Testament have application today, too. Persistently, New Testament writers look to the Old Testament for their theology and for their ethic. They consider it to be normative for New Testament Christians. And Paul says, especially for us, it was written for our admonition. And so what do we learn from this? We should learn that we must trust God whatever the adversity, whatever the circumstance. We shouldn't let things hinder our perseverance. If we're not going to be prepared to endure the assaults of temptation and trial, then we aren't truly acting obediently before God. Obedience is genuinely obedience when it costs us something, when it hurts, when it's awkward and inconvenient, and when it doesn't fit into the natural pattern of things. Obedience is pretty easy when it's just what everybody expects and what everybody's doing and when there's nothing to get in the way and no pain and no cost. But obedience when it counts is obedience when it hurts. How did the people of God get into this problem? Basically, the Bible tells us through ingratitude. Ingratitude leads people to unbelief. Ingratitude for the previous favors God had shown them. 
And that's why you'll notice this dynamic. In Romans 1, Paul speaks of all men knowing God and glorifying Him not as God, neither gave they thanks, but became vain in their reasoning and their senseless heart was darkened. That lack of a thankful spirit is the doorway to a hardened, darkened heart of unbelief. And in unbelief, they expected nothing from God and they asked nothing from God. As James himself tells us in chapter 4 of his epistle, you have not because you ask not. So they didn't thank God that led them to unbelief and they didn't ask anything of God. And the reason they didn't is because they thought their situation was so unique, so different. And because of that uniqueness of their situation, they questioned the providence of God and the promise of God and the presence of God. Verse 7 says they began to ask, Is Jehovah among us or not? You too know what it is to think that your situation is unique. You know what it's like to say, Well, I have to speed because nobody else has been under this pressure that I've been under. There's got to be an exception made for me. I mean, how many of us have had to go through the children disobeying and the roast burning and the husband being late all in one night, huh? How many of us don't know where we're going to get the money to pay the bills at the end of this week and then have our mother die and have something else happen in the hospital? No, nobody has seen these courts of problems. You know, the old spiritual, nobody knows, you know, the, the troubles I've seen, that sort of thing. We all have that in our hearts. We all begin to think our situation is the exceptional one. Our situation is the one that allows for disobedience this one time. God will understand if I lose my temper. God will understand if I'm impatient. God will understand if I'm unkind, if I'm not too gentle. God will understand if I start doing things in a less than obedient and faithful way because God knows that I'm suffering. God knows that it's tough. It's rough. It's hard to be out here and undergo all these problems. And that's why Paul, at the end of this long paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, but there's no temptation taking you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. The Israelites thought, nobody's seen these kind of problems. Out here in the desert, no place to go, no food to eat, no water to drink, we're all going to die. Paul says, no. In one way or another, others have been there before, others have gone through that kind of problem, and even if they have it, the important thing is God is faithful. You may be tempted to a lack of faith, but God is faithful, and he can be counted on to provide a way of escape. Well, from that failing faith, Exodus 17 shows us they stumbled to miserable murmuring, really outlandish murmuring and perversity. They come to Moses, and remember, what was Moses' position? He was the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh, and Moses chose, rather, to go through opposition and persecution with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses gave up his courtly life to go out and be a shepherd, and he gave up the peace of that situation to come and to rule over these perverse people and to have his life constantly endangered. But they say, Moses, you brought us out here to die. 
They murmur against him and they make outlandish demands on him. They say, give us water, as though Moses somehow could provide them water. Insane accusations, malicious claims being made against him. And in fact, their unbridled appetites led them to such angry exaggeration that they came to murderous thoughts. Romans 3 says, of human nature, with their tongues they've used deceit, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Do a little psychological test on yourself sometime, if you ever can get yourself to stop and look at what's happening in your life when you lose your temper, ask yourself whether you're not much closer to wanting to hit somebody or to murder somebody when you get angry like that. That's true. Angry thoughts lead to murderous plans. And Moses said, God, they're about to stone me. They're so unhappy. They wanted to court-martial Moses. They wanted to bring an accusation against him and to, and to stone him for treason, to execute him. And Moses says, why are you tempting Jehovah? This, comes, this brings us to a part in the exhortation this morning that's hard for me to deliver because we don't like to put ourselves forward as servants of God, but you need to learn from this passage if I'm going to be faithful you need to learn from this passage that when you oppose those who are God's chosen servants and his ordained leaders, you oppose God. Many of us, many of the time, are not worthy of positions of trust and respect like that. But the fact is, Moses said, in opposing me, you're not opposing me, you're opposing God. Why are you proving the Lord? Why are you putting him to the test? Why are you provoking God? See, God's servants are his representatives, and to challenge the representative of God is to challenge him. And think of that, the impiety of that, to challenge God, to put him to the test. Isn't that, isn't that the very essence of sin, to put God to the test? To deify yourself and exalt yourself above God and above his word, and so you say, God, now you show yourself. You prove yourself. You make that clear to me. You demonstrate that to me. You give me some reason to trust you. Prove your promises. Show your veracity. Quite obviously, God's purpose in the wilderness was not a rapid mass transit to the promised land for his people, but rather to bring his people to himself. God could have transported them immediately, but he puts them through trial and temptation to test their hearts and eventually draw them to himself. In the end, the Bible says it's the people themselves who were being tested. Just read Deuteronomy 8.2 on that matter. God was testing them to see of what sort they were as they claimed to be his people. The law of God says at Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put Jehovah your God to a test as you put him to test at Massah. In our reading this morning from Psalm 95, we heard, harden not your heart as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, proved me and saw my work. It is wrong for man finite man, created man, to demand of the infinite creator any kind of proof. 
Much more is it wrong for a sinful, rebellious man to expect God to prove himself when the problem is our own evil and wicked response to him. God is not in the dock with man at the bar of justice declaring on his fidelity and his truth. It is rather God who is at the bar of justice and we as sinful human beings are in the dock and we have no right ever to prove him or to test him in this way. It's the very essence of sin. And what does God do with sinners? What does every sin deserve but the wrath and the curse of God? You know, there's only one person who ever lived a life of such constant faith and obedience, a life so lacking in murmuring and unbelief and complaint that he never proved God. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, too, was in the wilderness. You may remember at the time of his temptation when Satan was trying to bring him down. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy at this very point. And he says to Satan, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is wrong to react this way to adversity. It is wrong to expect that of God. It is wrong to put yourself in that position and to make those demands. Only our Lord Jesus Christ avoided the temptation to do that. We haven't avoided that temptation, and the Israelites didn't avoid that temptation, and the Bible says, therefore, they deserved to die. Just look at the disgraceful remembrance of this place in the names given, Masa and Meribah, striving and reproach. Romans 6.23 puts it very simply when we read, the wages of sin is death. And those wages are not going to be avoided by any of us. It's not like we can voluntarily miss payday. The wages will be paid. And all who have sinned will die. Not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. Be separated from God. Moses went to the Lord in prayer and noticed what God told him to do. God said, Moses, you walk on before these enraged people and you take the elders of Israel with you. Now, if you knew anything about Israelite culture, at that point you begin to say, uh-oh, wait, something heavy is about to happen here. Taking the elders of Israel was not some kind of go around and find just certain individuals that are elderly. The elders of Israel had authority in Israel, and they were the judges in the law courts. And in this particular case, they were going to be witnesses as to what would happen in God's own juridical scene. God was going to set court. The judges were coming. The people were going to be on trial, and God would have his say. And you know what the verdict was going to be? God says, Moses, you take that rod wherewith you smote the Nile River, take it in your hand and go. For you see, the rod of judgment is now going to fall not on the Nile River and not on the Egyptians, but on the Israelites because they have sinned and they haven't believed and they've dared to challenge my word and to doubt my promise. And so the demanded sentence of death is going to be inflicted. Now what did I tell you? The first thing you must learn from this lesson this morning is that unfaithful rebelliousness merits the judgment of God. If any of us were to stop and to go home at this point, and if I were to leave off preaching, however, I wouldn't be at all true to this text. 
Because though that message is there, the beauty of this text is that God comes in and saves the people by a miracle of mercy. We are saved by God's provision, a miracle of his mercy. Because God, it turns out, is the one who is smitten. What does God say to Moses? He says, Moses, you go out, you take the elders, you take the rod, you go out to that rock in Horeb, and God says, and I will stand before you on the rock, Moses. I myself will stand before you on the rock, and Moses, you strike the rock. And in so doing, bring the rod of judgment down upon me. The rock is struck because God stands before him to bear the sins of his people. And so we learn from this text that the Lord whom no man can approach with an uplifted and defiant hand, the Lord yet tells Moses to bring down the rod of punishment on his own holy person. I can't fail to um, recall here the words of Isaiah 53 how the prophet speaking of Jesus, the coming Savior, the Messiah, says of him, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but Jehovah has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you understand why Paul says then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that rock was Christ? When God took the stroke of judgment for the sin of his people, that rock was nothing less than a foreshadowing of the person and the work of Jesus Christ who would suffer for the sins of his people. And even as there were elder eyewitnesses at the time of Moses, so the apostles were eyewitnesses of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And even though Moses went outside the camp, so Jesus likewise went outside the city wall to suffer. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3 says. Yes, God made him to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And isn't it interesting that as Christ hung upon that accursed cross, bearing the stroke of judgment for us, he thirsted. He thirsted like the people in the Old Testament did, and yet he did so without reviling. And though it's hard to know whether this much of the analogy is intended, it is interesting that as the rock was struck and water flowed from it, so Christ upon the cross was struck and water mixed with blood flowed from his side. You're thirsty this morning? You may physically be thirsty, but even more importantly, spiritually, do you know what it is to thirst for God? The psalmist says, I have longed for thy salvation, O Jehovah. As the heart pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You know what it is to be in a situation where temptation overcomes you? 
Do you know what it is to murmur against God, to put him to the test, and to know that you deserve to die? And you need to turn to the same rock from which the Israelites received their salvation and the quenching of their thirst. That rock, Jesus Christ, whom Paul sets forth as the Lord of glory, the Savior of our souls. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Thirsty, sinful, polluted, and guilty people will find there's only one way to quench their thirst, and that's with the miraculous provision of Jesus Christ himself, smitten because of our sin, taking the rod of judgment down on his own person, and now providing to us rivers of living water. Are you thirsty enough to stoop down and drink and live? I know that many of you, I know I myself, in the midst of the temptations of our move and all the other problems that we are facing, we know what it is to live in what appears to be a very weary land. We know the burning noontide heat. We know the burdens of the day. And if we do, I trust that we know what it is likewise to stand in the shadow of a mighty rock. Jesus Christ, the mighty rock, smitten for our salvation and for our spiritual sustenance. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us the water of life this morning from your own dear Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is the rock of our salvation, and yet the one who took the rod of judgment and bore it in his own person in our place. Lord, we begin to see now why this text is so very important throughout the scriptures and in the history of salvation. For it shows us in one very small incident a very big message about how you save your people and provide for their needs despite their failing faith and their miserable murmuring and their deserving of death. Lord, teach us to serve you with the refreshment and the strength that we have from the water of life. Teach us to trust you all the more throughout this week. Stop our tongues from murmuring and make us truly people of faith. For we pray in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.